0: Now you're very welcome along to the huddle breakdown and to call here with you in the company of Alan Morrison and soon to be joined by Juco James who's running a little bit late. We are going to be looking back at Celtics 2-1 victory against Motherwell as they return to SBFL action and we're going to be looking ahead to the RB Leipzig clash in the Champions League group stages as well. If you want to get this podcast later on, you can get it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, or you can subscribe to us on YouTube as well, The Huddle Breakdown on YouTube, if you're
2: looking for us. Alan, how are you? Yeah, um, good, thanks. Nice to be here on on a Tuesday. Loving the new graphics. I'm sure you want to tell us all about those.
0: Yeah, so in case anybody's uh, looking or thinks we're changed uh, a lot over the channel, there's a new logo, there's new graphics, and Uh, Soon to be a couple of more things coming down the line as well. I just want to say a massive thank you to everybody who has watched or listened or done anything in relation to the podcast, because you are the reason that we're able to do these things in order to bring the show forward and improve on things little by little. And uh, to be honest, we're a bit shocked that we got to season three. So uh, we're just continuing on uh, in the way that Celtic are just hoping to improve bit by bit. And Celtic got back to winning ways after the international break. A loss to St. Marin going into the international break was not ideal, but they got back to winning ways. 2-1 against Motherwell, Kyogo and Hatate getting the goals there, and a bit of a mix-up between Juranovic and Joe Hart, causing uh, a goal to go in the other end in favour of Motherwell. Uh, Alan, the reaction to this game is very interesting and very... Um, Celtic if you want to put it that way it wasn't a performance that Celtic put in that blew away the Motherwell team but if you look at the actual underlying metrics here in terms of even just the the possession the xg the shots the chances created Celtic in comparison to Motherwell here this was actually a very dominant
2: Celtic display Indeed um it, it was a, a strange dichotomy between how people seemed to feel in the stadium in terms of the frustration levels that were very evident when you were watching the game and it came through loud and clear um throughout the game uh and then you know the fact that it was it was a 2-1 win quite it seemed quite narrow and then the reaction versus as you say the underlying metrics which And none of it kind of makes a lot of sense (laughs) in many ways, because I mean even the underlying metrics are are a little bit strange. I'm hoping when when James comes on, I mean he's 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 the he's my go-to person in terms of sort of challenging some of these XG models. But you know, um, if you look across uh, the XG models, um, there's quite a discrepancy. But all of the sort of let's call it the commercial. Um, uh, producers all had Celtic between 3.2 and 3.8. And 3.8 was actually stats bomb that, you know, James always says is, I'm not going to say the best, but it's the one that caters for the most variables. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas whereas Motherwell were all around about sort of 0.3, 0.2, that sort of thing. I actually, with my sort of analog XG model, had it, it just below 3.0. And, and them okay. just below 0.5, and I think mine is the it was the best reflection of the game, to be honest with you. Uh, but yeah, they all average out about 3.4 to 0.35. I, I, you know, if I watched that when I watched that game, I didn't feel that you know it looked like that was a th- three three and a half xg game for Celtic by any stretch. Definitely the better team, definitely should have won. But um, the the underlying metrics seem to be quite odd, and I'd be interested in James's view as to why that why that is.
0: Yeah, well, like th- this is where the I don't know if, what, what do you want to call it the the argument or the um, the key difference between fans who watch the game and don't really care about stats or don't really care about metrics, and the fans who what like maybe might not catch the game live and will look at the underlying data first before they go watch the game, because there's no way that I came away from that game thinking that was a good performance from Celtic yet all of the underlying data says that it was. And I, I, I'm interested to get your thoughts of why it felt that way. For me, hmm. it wasn't that it was a sloppy match for Celtic. It wasn't that there, they didn't particularly create many chances. For me, it was, just came down to the pace of the game and the the, the crispness of the passing. And some of the movement just didn't seem to be there. And it just didn't seem like a textbook Celtic performance if you're going to use a football cliche you could say that Celtic seemed like they were in second gear the entire way through the game
2: yeah I, I, so listen I, I, I like the word use sloppy that's exactly what I wrote in my sort of um, the commentary that I kind of keep my own little notes as I'm watching the game and sloppiness and, and imprecision and, and and actually a little bit of nervousness I think uh, and and if you think about it this is a team that's had a, a long, unbeaten league run suddenly come to a, a shuddering halt in, in quite spectacular fashion at St Mirren, uh, on top of some difficult um, European games. I mean, the Real Madrid game for all the first 50, 55 minutes were excellent. It was actually quite stark how, how much more streetwise, how much more who better Real Madrid were in terms of their game management and the, the way that they, 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 they you know, they, they eventually imposed themselves, and that was probably a bit of a shock to the system. And then, uh, you know, thirdly, to sort of have that disappointment of, of, you know, not leaving Warsaw with three points. So I think this is, you know, what is still a young team who suddenly had a bit of a set, a few setbacks. And, and there's a little bit of nervousness there um, and, and, and that's, and I, that's all, all I can really put it down to and that's what seemed to to come through. Now, there is another factor which maybe we can touch on in more detail later, which is that um, not not to go so far as to say that teams have worked out how to play Celtic, but I was just looking at some of the team level metrics before we came on air and it looks to me as if some teams are adjusting the way they play very specifically um, to, 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 match, to match, or to try and you know, to, to, I mean, Celtic scored like four goals a game in the first what, what was it, six league games, right? You know, and, and this team, teams are going to look at that and think, right, well, how are we going to stop that? We don't want to get beat four nil, five nil, six nil, nine nil, right? So there is a lot of that I think going on as well. I think you know, Motherwell, for example, um, their, their approach was different to St Mirren. Um, they, they, they were kind of a medium to low block, but what they did, what they did was essentially said to the two centre backs, you can have the ball. We're not going to press you. I mean, Van Bean's not his game anyway, uh, but you can essentially have the ball. And then we'll just make sure that everybody else is really tightly marked. And it, and, and that came across to people as if, oh, it's really frustrating. Jens and Welsh are holding on to the ball too long. Their passing's no good and all this sort of thing. When actually the the, 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 um, the, the, the responsibility uh, and the burden of progressing the ball into the final third almost fell exclusively to these two, two, two players. Um, and actually, you know, I'm, I'm going to probably annoy people again when I, you know, because Welsh to me was the best, was our best player. And because he was the the most successful at moving the ball and he was one of the few people that also didn't make a horrendous defensive error. Because <laughs> that was the other feature of the game. You mentioned sloppiness. I mean, I I, I, I logged up seven seven defensive errors, which is a lot for us. Uh, and Motherwell, you know, really, really didn't make any. So, listen, there was an awful lot of sloppiness. I mean, I I, I, I started to think, of what are the things that are driving the sort of crowd getting frustrated? And there's, I had a whole, a whole list of things. It's never one thing, right? You know, the. I think there was probably a little bit, um, let's be honest about it, we started the day thinking that perhaps... The Rangers might drop points at Hearts, and that didn't happen. In fact, quite spectacularly, didn't happen. So there's a little bit of a sort of, um, you know, wishful thinking there that didn't quite come to fruition. Then, then you've got the, you know, the own goal, which everyone sort of is, is in howls of derision at, and it kind of it makes you lose confidence a little bit in players that you, you the two, two your most experienced international players and Hart and Juranovic. Then the second half started really badly, really badly, very sloppy. Then, then you had throughout you had um, obviously you know, the John Beaton factor. Right? I mean, you don't need to say any more about that. He was he was horrendous in terms of continually allowing late challenges to go un, un, unpunished. Um, there was the time wasting. You know, there was the teams are now teams are now becoming very good at disrupting Celtic's multi-ball system. Right. They're deliberately getting the ball, throwing another ball on the pitch. There's always two balls on the pitch. They're deliberately ignoring the the ball, the little ball boys and girls, and wandering off to get the ball when there's one right in front of them. Oh, and, and listen, why, why wouldn't you? Because that's that's you know, Celtic use that try and use that to their advantage. But this is now this is now becoming a feature, right? And it's going to frustrate the, the crowd as well. People, you know, pe- people left the, the stadium on a downer because. McGregor being been sent off in the 89th minute, right? So all these factors, I think, um, you know, as, on top of the recent runoff, we haven't actually won a game for three games, three, four games as well. I think that to me, to me, they're, they're all, all the factors. And as I say, if you add on to that a sloppiness, you know, we, we we forced 10, what I call pack turnovers. So let me just explain that. So there's a new thing that I'm tracking this year. So if you, if you give the ball away um, and therefore by giving the ball away, Some of your teammates are 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 in front of the ball. uh, That's that's the same as packing essentially. So that's a turnover against you, and you lose points for that. If you like, similarly, if you intercept the ball and their their players are in front of the ball, then then that's that you force a turnover. So we forced ten turnovers, but they forced sixteen. So we were kind of on the wrong end. So it just looked like a really bad sloppy performance. I mean, Hitati's at the Mm -hmm. end that forced the sending off being the worst of them, where he he literally took out the whole team apart from Welsh by (laughs) passing the ball back. Every single Celtic player was then behind the ball apart from Stephen Welsh. So so I think these are all the factors that I could sort of think of as to why there was audible and visible frustration on the field. But what I think was really, really um, unfortunate and unfair was that a lot of it seemed to manifest on the two centre-backs who, as I say, were forced... To carry the creative burden because of the way Motherwell set up. Mm.
0: I've often thought that Celtic could easily play a playmaking player as their centre back <clears throat> in well, the like league. Um, sort of, well, more like Aaron Moy. Like I, I, I genuinely wouldn't have been surprised if Aaron Moy was brought in to play centre back for these games for Celtic um, and they played a sort of a, a three at the back um going forward against these uh these sides that are set up like this just to have that creative option but um that might be a little bit uh, farcical or, or dream worthy stuff uh chico james has joined us uh, better late than never what are your general uh thoughts on this win against motherwell a 2-1 win if this is a 3-1 win, people aren't complaining
3: i think yeah apologies for for joining late um I, I, I heard most of what Alan said there as far as why it feels so much worse than it probably was, and I, I echo those comments uh, 100%. Probably, the and I, I didn't catch if Alan mentioned this, but <clears throat> one of the things I noticed and uh, looked into um, is that we've had a really weird start to the season relative to not finishing chances close to goal. You know, kind of the higher quality ones we're missing on a disproportionate basis, and that you know, whether people call him a sitter or whatever you want to call it, when, when you miss those kind of opportunities, that kind of juices the the anxiety up a few notches too. Um, and and uh, the game against Motherwell was another example of that where you just had a bunch of stuff kind of not quite go right uh, from a finishing perspective too. Um, and, you know, it, it, it was one of those games where literally if it wasn't for that uh, good finish by – by Hitate and their keeper being maybe not quite as great as he could have been or good as he could have been. Um, you know, that's a nil-nil draw, and we're all looking to jump off the building, uh, um, so, which is crazy because all the things that Alan said, it, it it wasn't anywhere near that close.
0: It is very much a, a, a perception versus reality sort of thing here because I, I think Alan raised a, a, a lot of good points there in terms of how the fans felt and why the fans would have felt that way. And, and again, when I was analyzing this game on this channel, I was looking at it and and I was trying to get put forward the point that I was trying to make that, I was not trying to make the argument that this was a good performance from Celtic, but everything tells you that this actually was a good performance from Celtic bar, a couple of sloppy passes here or there. The issue for us and the biggest issue for me is, um, we're playing RB Leipzig tomorrow night, and if Celtic put in a performance like that against RB Leipzig, they're going to be absolutely destroyed. That's my biggest issue with this performance.
2: Yeah,
3: that, yeah, uh, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I'm sorry. <clears throat> I was just going to say it, it. It's, um, I mentioned after the Saint Mirren game that I'd be more concerned if it was, you know, if we kind of had a string of these kind of things, and this was a different kind of uh, annoying and concerning. Um, but again, we're, you know, um, with the, the disru- we had the disruptions of the significant amount of um, uh, ch- changeover in the squad for the St. Mirren game. And in this game, we're still dealing with, you know, two center backs that probably haven't really played together at all other than in practice. And, um, you know, to Alan's point, we, another opponent who... Um, weren't completely bereft of any kind of uh reasonableness with their game plan meaning that it was relatively coherent relatively well coached relatively well organized and relatively well executed given their standard and you know so it's it's in a different way it was similar to saint mirror and so is that enough to get really concerned about not for me given all the issues but that's to your point and uh I've been concerned the whole time since we've had the announcement that RB Leipzig was going to... So this is the game in Germany against this opponent is the one I am was anxious about anyway. And with those two things back-to-back heading into tomorrow, you know, it's definitely not mm-hmm. optimal, particularly if uh, Carter Vickers isn't going to play, which I don't know if that's even been determined yet. Um, that's Last I heard, that was up in the air. Um, and, you know, again, some of these just... Structural issues that we've had for for a while now. So, yeah, it's frustrating. It's concerning, but I I think it's also not productive to get hysterical and start blaming individual players for you know as as Alan said, um, that probably don't deserve it um, relatively yeah. speaking. So,
0: yeah, exactly. And we're going to touch on that RB Leipzig game in more detail later on in the podcast. But just sticking with the the Motherwell win, let's get into some more detailed analysis on it and. Um, on the video that I did in analyzing this game, somebody mentioned that Welsh was six foot three, and um, we're not going to get into the uh, what height stop, Stephen Welsh is again, it. but he's certainly Just not. He's certainly not six foot three. Um, but let's talk about Welsh because look, it's it was Welsh and Yens in centre back. Celtic have conceded four goals in the league this year, and I'm pretty sure all four of them have come when Cameron Carter-Vickers has not been. Uh, in the side for Celtic there's certainly defensive frailties there it's certainly not as strong um, in terms of the the team that has Cameron Carter Vickers in it you can potentially put that down to just communication and leadership and also his uh, incredible ability to be in the right place at the right time but let's focus on Stephen Welsh Alan, because you mentioned that you thought he was Celtic's best performer Stephen Welsh as usual came out of this game taking most of the flack, despite the fact that he didn't really do much wrong defensively.
2: No, and, and actually, you know, Celtic's difficulties were mostly self-inflicted, which then how can you say they defended well? But they did. But Motherwell didn't create anything. And the reason that Motherwell didn't create anything is partly down to, you know, just the level that Motherwell are at, but also partly down to how effective Celtic are in stopping them from creating stuff, right? I mean, that's what the Celtic defence and midfield and forwards are there to do when they don't have the ball. So it was another game, yet another game, where, where the opposition barely got half half a XG in the match, Right, um, and that's a, that's a good thing. So, so be you know without Carter Vickers, and you know the goal was was one of those things where you know it's just a horrendous um, misunderstanding between the two players, um, which does happen sometimes. Um, but there were a lot of errors on the day, um, but Welsh I didn't think had any of them that caused um, direct threat to the goal. He had a little period after half time. It's like the first time he misplaced a pass. Uh, and I heard the audible booze from the crowd or groans. And I looked down on my little spreadsheet and I'm capturing the data. It's like that's his first pass that he's misplaced in the whole game. Why, why are people getting on his back? It's literally the first pass. He's like completed 30, and that's the first one that he's misplaced, and people are on his back. I think then you think he had the little that little spell at the beginning of the second half where Celtic were generally awful and Welsh, he, he, he underhit a pass out wide. And it just shows you the danger, actually, of of play of centre backs playing sort of longer passes. Is that even against Motherwell, that was intercepted, and suddenly Iuranić is out of position, and you've got like a three-on-three three very quickly. Now in Europe, that's lethal, you know, to be in that situation. But well, what Welsh did actually was he just took the guy out on the halfway line, and then like took the yellow card, which is a very pragmatic and sensible decision. Something that Celtic do quite well nowadays. Um, so that and it looked untidy, and he got a lot of um, kind of stick for that. And actually, you know, again, just to sort of finish off on the. Things that didn't go so well for him is that again, like Starfelt, because he is you know five, 11, six foot at best, he does lose aerial balls and against you know uh, a Van Veen or Louis Molt, big big strong centre forward that most SPFL teams have now, um, you know he does he does lose headers. So again, he was three he was three three four three against on on jewels, not many duels, right? But he was 50-50. Again, you're looking to be sort of eighty percent really on those. So that, that that so I think maybe that 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 had a, neg- a negative effect. But if you look at you know he completed ninety eight passing passes that was sort of first in the team. Ninety four percent completion rate first in the team. You know he, he had nineteen pack passes first in the team. He had he had the highest packing score for passing one hundred and forty eight, which was you know. Um, which is nearly like sixty higher than anybody else. You know, nineteen percent of his passes actually took out opponents. He had eight eight progressive runs, uh, which is three more than than anybody else. So, you know, to me, he was the the one player that was you know took on the the burden of trying to get the ball progressed, uh, and that was despite the fact that, and we'll come on to Matt O'Reilly in a minute. Despite the fact that one of the main targets for Progressing the ball was was in my in my opinion you know badly misused and unavailable to him because it you know that that right hand side centre back to right to right sided number eight is one of the most effective passes that Celtic play last season that Carter Vickers to Rogic or and Carter Vickers to O'Reilly pass was the signature pass. Um, the, the, if you look through the pack passing stats, that, that is the most common connection of all. And, and, and it, gave Celtic, it gave Celtic a platform then uh, to, to build the play. That pass wasn't available to Stephen Welsh until Turnbull came on. And then Turnbull, as soon as Turnbull came on and Abada, suddenly um, we, we completely um, opened them up on the right-hand side because Turnbull dropped into um, a number eight position And him and Abada and Juranovic were then able to get overloads against their two players that were defending that side. Something which hadn't happened for 65 minutes when Welsh was trying to to find a pass in front of him that wasn't there. So despite all that, he still had the best sort of passing stats. So that to me, you know, uh, I thought it was really harsh the way that he was kind of treated really. And I thought there were some structural issues that limited him and made him hesitant sometimes uh, as I say, in terms of just having, not having the options available to in front of him that, that, that there were on the other side.
3: If I, I'll just, uh, follow up on that. Um, and again, as Alan's been, uh, up, updating some of his data capture, I think, uh, particularly with what you're doing now with the turnovers and stuff, Alan, it's, I've just noticed anecdotally that you're, you're starting to correlate highly with what OBV suggests with, uh, things like pass and, and dribble and carry. So for example, Stephen Welsh was the highest pass OBV for the game. Right. And it, and it was a decent bit above uh, even um, Jota Jota was second, but you know, like 20% or 30% behind. And he was also highest in dribble and carry value for the game. Uh, so again, the idea of this OBV metric is to balance out good with the bad. badge kind of net it out. Um so it captures errors. It captures misplaced passes and what that might do for helping the other team. For example, Duran or uh, Hitate's <laughs> unfortunate through ball, the best of the game, maybe um, that resulted in the red card would, would have, you know, hit his pass uh, o- o- OBV for example, or his error rate, so to speak. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, I, I agree. And it, I, you know it's it's easy to kind of characterize performances qualitatively and and sometimes the numbers don't reflect um in, in a great way these things are not uh you know scientific it's not a physics formula or something but um i think that the 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 disparity in in perception with what's going on with welsh relative to yens and i think yens's performance levels which you know in mass have not been all that much different than welsh i mean i wouldn't be crushing one or the other versus the other. you know what i mean like they're in the same neighborhood uh if anything probably tilted towards welsh um and the, the the narrative disparity between the two is just pretty amazing and it's to me it comes back to this whole issue of confirmation bias which is people have a an anchored bias against a player and then every time something goes even mildly wrong or bad from that player you know they just that's all they can see and feel, and um, or or it distorts kind of how the the impression of the mm. player is just because of that underlying bias. So, so, so I James, just,
2: James, James, sorry, sorry to cut in there, just, just to highlight that fact. So, I don't, I don't want to sort of embarrass anyone on the comments, but somebody in the comments said that you know, Welsh's two passes out of play were pub league standard, and that's that's to me, that's that's classic sort of. You know, you're you're forgetting the 94 passes he completed, and, and focusing on two passes he didn't. Now, one of them did cost him a yellow card, and I accept that. And and you know we and I've said that you know we can track that, and it hits on things like OBV, and it hits on things like turnover rate, and it, all that sort of stuff. It's recognised, it's in there in the performance data. But you know, in the other 89 and a half minutes, there was all this other stuff, and <laughs> and nearly all of it was good. You know. Well, you know, and, 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 and and if I think you, you, think you also if have, have yeah. to.
3: I'm sorry. If there was a confirmation bias in this game, there was two events that should have been huge. Like this player is terrible, right? What What were the big mistakes? I mean, the well, big the, mistakes. the first one, and then Hart and Uranum. Oh, no, there was, oh, there was three then. There was well, three, right, but the other, one was,
2: was was John Beaton not awarding a penalty for a clear hand handball that both he and the linesman can see, and they, and they choose not to award. That's a huge mistake, mm-hmm. if what well, you can call it a mistake. But that completely changes the perception of the game. It does. It completely changes the perception. Not only does it completely change the perception of the game, if, if Celtic are 3-1 up in the 75th minute, right, I can almost guarantee you that McGregor and Hatati are off the pitch and Abel and Moyer are on to say, go on, lads, have 15 minutes, to see out the game. Completely different. Yeah. It changes so many things.
0: I think just just a final point on this subject as well is that um, one of the things that people tend to forget is that there's, there are two teams on the pitch and there are two professional outfits on the pitch. And it doesn't take a professional outfit to say, from Van Veen's perspective, okay, here's Stephen Welsh, here's Maurice Jens, one of them is much bigger than the other. I'm going to isolate the smaller one, and that's what he did, and that's what professional footballers do. They get into the positions to isolate the weakest potential target, and in this case, it's Stephen Welsh in terms of his overall aerial ability. You can't just you can't just forget about the other the opposition because you're concentrating on what Stephen Welsh is poor at that's what the opposition are doing as well. So you have to take that into consideration when you're evaluating all these things as well. And in in terms of... Um, and and, and Sorry, just
2: just very quickly, just jump in. So, I mean, um, you know, Jen's won all six of his aerial duels. Uh, He didn't win possession, but he he won the challenge. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, just just backing up your point, really.
0: Yeah, exactly. You just, you try and isolate the smaller defender if you're a, a striker who's operating off long aerial balls. That's what you try to do. Um, in terms of further, further up the field, two other players that you wanted to look at here, on was Matt O'Reilly and Jota. Let's talk about Jota first, because I think Matt O'Reilly kind of comes into the conversation when it comes to his role in the Champions League games as well. Um, Jota didn't get a goal in this game. He created quite a bit, though, and it's one of those things, and I, look, I'm not... Advocating for gambling or whatever, there's no sponsorship here. But I was, I had a, a little nibble on the, on the game, and one of my bets was for Jota to score and Hitati to score anytime. So I found myself concentrating quite a bit on Jota and his movements in this game. And it is quite interesting how much more you notice when you are concentrating just on that one minute. Uh, Point of the game, or if you have a point of contact in the game, and I found myself very much gravitated to what Jota was doing a lot. This wasn't the rent money, was it, Anthony? <laughs> this is what paid for the graphics,
2: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so listen, I, mean, I think you know, I, I find myself getting frustrated at him in the first half. In the first half, um, you know, 13 passes, you know, he, he gave up, 13, pa- and the next highest was five, right? You know, um. Seven times he gave the ball away in the final third, which was one more than, than O'Reilly, who will come on to. Four, he failed with four crosses, which was three more than anybody else. I think, he, you know, but and yet and yet he puts in the cross from which O'Reilly gets the header from which uh, Kyogo scores, and then he provides an assist for Hitate. So this is the thing with Jota, right? There's the, you've got to take the rough with the smooth. And And actually, when you look at the end of the game, and and the final sort of the final tally is um he's got the highest sort of overall attacking threat score which i i is a sort of bespoke thing that i i calculate which was his score of 9 so Kyoko's next on 7 he um he had the highest he had the second highest total packing score after Welsh uh, he'd got he'd come off the pitch with with a, say, an assist and a secondary assist An As expected scoring contribution of point 6 1. He'd created, he'd created um, you know, four, four, four chances overall, including that one assist, which was two more than anyone else, two passes into the danger zone, which is more than anyone else, two successful crosses. You know, so uh, Jota's, Jota's worst is still better than than uh, anybody else, really, in terms of that, certainly in the Scottish League. So it was, and I, and I was amazed at that, really, when I look back at it at the end, because my overriding feeling as I watched the game was one of intense frustration that thinking, you know, what, what's wrong with him? Why what's he, Why is he playing like this? And it's like, actually, he's still been one of the most effective players, if not the most effective attacker. I mean, he was the most effective mm-hmm. attacker on the pitch quite easily at the end of it. But you've just, I think it's just because, again, it's like what James said, you know, it depends which events you want to anchor your emotions to. And because with Jota, there are so many events there are so many attempts at crossing there are so many attempts at dribbling there are so many sort of you know shots that come in some of them from daft angles that if you wanted to anchor on the bad decisions and the badly executed ones you could easily conclude that he's a dreadful player what you forget is that um, amongst all that is actually some really really good stuff and, uh, and, and, and 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 almost no matter who the opponent is he seems to be able to kind of produce that at volume uh, and, so, and some mm-hmm. of it comes to you know turns to gold so, um in a, in a high In a um, high-possession, dominant team, he's an incredibly useful player. And I imagine he would be at any level.
0: Mm -hmm. One thing that I noticed from it, which I... I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me.
2: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com
1: slash host.
0: I found quite interesting was himself and Maeda weren't switching wings as much as they normally do. He very much was anchored to the left-hand side of the pitch the entire game and didn't really um, move from that. I think once or twice he popped up on the right, but apart from that, he was... He was a uh, playing left wing. Another thing that I noticed from his performance was that he actually looked bollocks by the end of the game. And again, this is me hyper focused on Jota as opposed to anybody else because I wanted <laughs> I knew he had to come off the pitch, but I wanted him to score. But this is these are the things that you notice. And I just he did look weirdly tired. Maybe it was because he was getting on the ball quite a bit. Um, but I don't know, James. These are the things that you get with Jota. We mentioned this before when we were signing him. You're not getting a player who's going to be, you know, absolutely flawless with his passing like Greg Taylor is at times. And he's, he's he's a completely different player. He's a player who dribbles, he's a player who shoots, he's a player who who tries things that others don't. And because of that, he's a very, very valuable player. But it can be frustrating to watch at times. It's sort of, sort of like Aidan McGeady.
3: And, and like Abata, I mean, we've talked about this. Uh, I think Abata is even a uh, more severe case of the same phenomena. Um, and that, I, I think that's also kind of why you have this uh, manic, depressive, um, or bipolar relationship with wingers that fans oftentimes have. Um, because they are a high risk, high reward kind of position. And depending on what the sequencing of that is and what uh, a person's particular uh, favorability of that player is or lack thereof, you can get into a lot of, um, you know, fr- frustration or uh, bliss at times, depending on how things are playing out. And I, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think on the dial, as far as they go, you know, J- Jota's, because he's a volume player, as Alan said, he's, he's so involved. Like Eliunusi wasn't this involved in our attack. He was more, you know, he was cl- closer to like a Maeda or even, you know, somebody who's on the wing but isn't, you know, like a heavy involvement in play, um, uh, almost like an inverted forward. Whereas, you know, Jota's on the ball constantly, constantly taking people on, constantly trying things, and just by chance, certain games you're going to have a number of those that don't play out. Um, the other thing, and to your point. Um, uh, you degenerate gambler, is that he normally doesn't play 90 minutes. Um, you know, we we usually take the wingers off as a matter of substitutions, you know, in that first, you know, the shift change around 70 minutes. Usually it's, it's um, the wingers that come off pretty early. So, um, I don't think – and, Alan, I don't know if you have that. I, I don't think he's finished too many games. Uh, he,
2: I would slightly disagree. He's one of the okay. few that, that pretty much always stays on.
3: <laughs> um,
2: I, and, 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 and I agree with you about the tiredness thing. I mean, one of the factors – sorry to sort of go off on a bit of a tangent, but um, one of the things that really annoyed me was that the, the, the one of the reasons that Hitati made the mistake that he did was, it, was he was absolutely dead on his feet. But it was obvious to me that he was dead on his feet from about the 80th minute. Um, he, mm-hmm. he, I think he, he he popped up on the left. Celtic had a break. Somebody was overlapping him, and he and he left-footed tried this ridiculous cross-field to Jota, um, and it just kind of went right into the goal. Okay. It was a tired decision, and it was a tired execution. And he looked tired, and he was he slumped when he when he hit it, and and you could see he was he'd gone. Four minutes later, eighty-fourth minute, he got absolutely hammed. After he looked really tired, he, he then got a bad head knock, and then. He still, he still didn't get taken off, and then you know, lo and behold, three minutes later, he gives the ball away, uh, and McGregor gets sent off. So that, to me, that's
3: on the manager. Yeah, and to, to Alan's point, um, I, I think well, let's see, it's got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. So this is why it's good to have a guy like Alan because he knows his stuff, unlike me. Uh, so it's six out of ten games this season, um, including um, the Champions League that Jota's played. You know, roughly ninety minutes. Or, or more, So he's come out earlier one, two, three times, basically. Yeah, so fair enough. C- correct me when I'm wrong, and I was wrong on that.
0: Exactly. Um, so we're just going to wait to see if Alan comes back, and uh, we'll get him in uh, as soon as he is uh, rebooted and up and going again. We'll move on to the RB Leipzig game tomorrow night because we're about 35 minutes in here. So the... Game tomorrow is probably make or break if Celtic are going to do anything in this Champions League group stage. Um, Maybe even potentially if they want to drop in to the Europa League group stage and have uh, football after Christmas in terms of European football. RB Leipzig are a team that are getting going under Marco Rose, you could say. They won 4-0 at the weekend. And I did a bit of analysis on them today, James, on the channel based on their their tactics and what they're going to do and what they did at the weekend and how they're going to do damage to Celtic. One thing that I noticed was that they play a 4 4 essentially, going forward when they're breaking forward and with a lot of fast players like Inkunku and Timo Werner. That sounds to me like it could be incredibly dangerous for this Celtic team who play very, very narrow.
3: Yeah, it's... Um... As, as I've been saying repeatedly for weeks now, um, and I mentioned earlier, this, this is the the game of my utmost anxiety. And as as much as um, we've been trying to provide some context for the performances against St. Mirren and and Motherwell, um, trying to be balanced, meaning that, you know, there's certainly plenty of good with bad in both. Um, a, a lot of the things that we're def- kind of defending a Welsh and a or are... Um, you know, the team in general on, I, I tend to get a lot more worried, uh, with those issues, meaning that on the the margin relative to playing a, you know, a mother well at home, it's like, okay, don't get your hair on fire, um, over it. I, my, my hair is on fire a little bit <laughs> with the same issues heading into tomorrow. Um, and I hope that that's an irrational anxiety. I hope that I'm overstating it in my own, uh, dark recesses of my mind but and, and mm-hmm. my my emotions but uh yeah I, I think this is a really tough matchup i think kind of the most favorable uh sequence that we could hope for is kind of a crazy chaotic game where we get a lot of chances and uh maybe hit them on the counter and um you know score some goals with some good finishing and or they make some mistakes um and they have a bad day finishing which I think it's possible you know Werner hasn't exactly been uh, Lewandowski um, as far as his finishing goes uh, over time so hopefully you know they have a rough day in that regard um, but I, I just think it's going to be very difficult for us to handle their press and to kind of play out the way I think we're going to try to play out um, and to, to make the kind of passes that we make domestically, you know, as Alan was saying, relative to a Welsh hitting a guy in that half space where, you know, you have a a step and a half or maybe two steps of space, and you're just not going to have anywhere near that kind of time against Leipzig. They're going to, you know, flock to people because of the way they play number one, but also um, the, the size and the athleticism of the people that they have deploying doing this. I mean, it's just uh, it's just a different, um level so you know and any of these mistakes any of this sloppiness I think will be amplified tr- to a severe degree um potentially and and so that's that's the um that's the anxious anxiousness um the positive side is it could be quite entertaining and like I said I, I think we've we've got a puncher's chance right I, I I'm not going in with a defeatist attitude I think we can um you know c- come out with a result um but I'm I also worried about the other side of that, which is we could get quite a doing, I think, um, if we don't get some of those breaks go our way.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm going to be chatting to Phil Bundesliga-Bonnie on tomorrow uh, on the channel tomorrow. So he's, he's going to fill me in a little bit more in detail about Marco Roves and how RB Leipzig have been uh, performing under him since he he took over. They're still in a bit of a mess in the Bundesliga, let's be honest. They're in the bottom half of the table so far. So I think we're getting them at an okay time, probably not the best time. A couple of weeks ago would have been the best time to get them when they were in a real mess. And Marco Rose has had an international window now to, to work on things. So it, it may not be the best time to get them. But I still think they're not as good as potentially their reputation brings I think a lot of people look to the Leipzig or the RB projects in general and think oh these teams are incredible and they see all these project players coming out of it where in, re- in reality they're they're not maybe as strong as uh, they're perceived to be in terms of the way that Celtic are going to play Cameron Carter Vickers by the way you mentioned him earlier on he didn't train or wasn't video training for Celtic today so it's That's probably, probably yeah. unlikely that he's yeah. going to be in the team uh, tomorrow, so it's
3: likely yeah, so going to be. That's, or, that's horrifying for me. <laughs> I, yeah.
0: I'll just be it's likely I mean, going to be. Yeah, it's likely going to be Jens and Welsh in defence with Juranovic and Greg Taylor. So you're talking about your third and fourth starting uh, choice uh, centre back starting in the Champions League. This is where we come into the the squad depth and whether it was actually whether it was as strong as we we might have perceived it to be. But in, in terms of the what Celtic need to do here, somebody mentioned in the comments that the first 15 minutes are going to be absolutely vital for Celtic here. We saw what Celtic tried to do against Shakhtar and that worked relatively well. They came out of the blocks really, really quickly, got an early goal, but then made the mistake of sitting back against Real Madrid. They came out of the blocks really quick, burned themselves out by 60 minutes, and uh, the game was over at that stage. Are we going to see the the you know the third bowl of porridge where it's just right from Celtic and they get the mix between coming out of the blocks really quickly, scoring their chances, and then controlling the game in a better way? Or how are you expecting Celtic to perform here?
3: Well, I, I have to say, all that time in Italy with the sun, your hair does kind of look Goldilocksy-ish. So uh, you're a little little blonder than normal, but um, yeah, I. You know, I I talk about one of the potential strategies for opposition at Celtic is kind of try to try the high press, try the ambush early. If you get that early goal, then you can kind of, you know, sit back and maybe play on the counter and be more conservative. Um, I I doubt we're going to do that, but I could see that being a plausible game plan heading in against this opponent. Because again, I I think to your point, if we try to go toe to toe with these guys for the entire ninety minutes at because again, I this is not Real Madrid. Even this, this I'm not saying about quality. I'm saying that the pace with which these guys play, uh, and the ferocity uh, that they play, um, you know, the 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 potential for us getting tired even faster. I think is not, you know, um, a, a low probability. And uh, because of the depth issues that we're missing some important guys, particularly in defense, that would certainly be. Uh, you know, a concern potentially. So, um, I, I, I don't know. I, that's, I, I'm, that's part of why we talk about this being, ga- this game being such an interesting litmus test. Um, and so, to a degree, it's not a fair one because of, and I don't mean fair in a sense of, you know, whether it'll be a fair game, but you know, it's not going to be quite the litmus test if we had everybody uh, fit, you know, we'd like to see, Uh, Starfelt and CCV in this context to see them get stress test at this level against this level of an opponent that plays this way. We're not going to get that, Um, and I suspect you know that'll be to our detriment because of um, because of the issues that we're going to confront. But yeah, I I think it's going to be fascinating to see how we set up, how we decide to play, um, and you know whether or not some of these tweaks that we've talked about relative to pressing and. Um, leaving space, that kind of thing is is um, you know adjusted uh, more intensely in in this game, um, and I think that could segue into what what Alan wanted to talk about if he's out of the matrix relative to O'Reilly's u- utilization as well. But um, so yeah,
0: yeah. Well, I was going to say for anybody who is listening to the podcast only, they won't know what I'm talking about here. But for anybody who's watching the YouTube stream, it looked like. It was one of those sort of protecting his identity in case, uh, <laughs> in case somebody is is after him in terms of Alan's line there. I think we might have him back, though. Alan, you're hearing us all right there?
2: I, I think I'm hearing you fine. Yes, sorry about that. It's my issue's my end, I think, just general. Um, I don't know. It seems to happen on a cloudy rainy day like today. It just seems to be crap. So I'll use the, white, I'll use the uh, Ethernet cable next time.
0: That's all good. So we were just getting on to the topic of Matt O'Reilly. So you mm. wanted to mention him in the context of the Motherwell game. Do you want to bring the context of the Motherwell game into the Champions League? Because like we mentioned on previous pods and review of the Shakhtar and the Real Madrid games, he's playing a different role from for Celtic this year in the Champions League. Maybe that's what he was mentioning in his uh, press conference a couple of weeks ago or a, a couple of months ago about training as a different strategy for for Celtic was his own particular role. He's playing almost like a second striker at times for Celtic when it comes to the Champions League games.
2: Yeah, that, that seems to have been the the pattern thus far in that without the ball, Celtic have dropped into a sort of 4-4-2 with O'Reilly joining um, Kyogo as the sort of front of the press, um, which is interesting. I'm not, I, don't, I don't claim to completely understand that. I know O'Reilly is particularly strong in the counter-press. But I wonder if he's as strong, um, you know, chasing down centre-backs as he is perhaps pressing from a little deeper. And I would have thought that perhaps Maeda would been more adept at hearing around, you know, f- hurrying up defenders, essentially, and making them play slightly quicker than they want to and therefore, you know, slightly inaccurately. Um, but w- what we saw against Motherwell, to me, was the sort of downside to that, which is that He's he's actually playing a little bit further forward, I think, than than what he had had been last season. So rather than being a sort of hybrid number ten, number ten would normally sort of operate quite centrally uh, and, and kind of drift drift either side. Celtic's two number eights try and occupy the spaces that a ten would, but on both sides, sometimes they go wide as well to help the fullbacks come in and or swap with the wingers. But the whole objective of that pattern. Those patterns I've just described is to is to get three players against two, um, or or two against one uh, in the wide areas. Either you know the the winger and the, and one other against the fullback, or um, the three against two in terms of the two the fullback and the and the and the wide midfielder on the opposition side. So what by, by what, but what O'Reilly seems to be doing is pushing right high up, and I think what he's I think what the I think what they're trying to do is to create more confusion in the defence and trying to get players running between between defenders and getting more people into the box. Um, now, you might say, well, OK, that worked really well on on Saturday because Jota crossed into the centre of the box and there was six foot two O'Reilly to head the ball from the centre of the goal, close, uh, and nearly scored. And, and that's how Celtic scored the first goal. And I, and I completely accept that. But if it, I don't think um, emulating the role of John Hartson is going to be the best use of Matt O'Reilly in the long term. I, I really don't. What you want to have O'Reilly doing is collecting the ball uh, in deeper positions where he's got time to look up and play quite quick passes into, into other runners um, or, or or move forward on, and cut in on his left foot and have a shot. And, and, and you know, he was incredibly successful in that role last season. And um, What we saw against Motherwell, as I mentioned before, or, or whether it was cut out or not, I don't know, is that one of the problems that Welsh had was that he had nobody in that 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 half space between... In in the pitch and between the fullbacks and the centre backs, where O'Reilly would normally have been last season to to pick out with that pass, that and um, and 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 we saw a number of times, three or four times in the first half, O'Reilly receiving the ball on the edge of the box and then immediately giving it away because he's not used to a playing with his back to goal and b having defenders right on him as soon as he as he connects with it by playing operating in those half space and and receiving the ball on the turn you're giving your creative players the space and the time to then do something with that and then start involving other players. But on the other side, the, the other downside to it in terms of blunting Celtic's attack, as I say, it means that we don't get these overloads. So, I mean, the classic example would be, um, the sec- the, you know, Hatati's uh, second goal in the derby in February, where, where we worked that overload perfectly to carve open that side and it resulted in Hatati scoring from that sort of uh, edge of the box. Um, so so to me, I, I don't see the upsides. And when I look at his data in terms of pressing, because you might think, well, okay, we've said before many times, O'Reilly's one of the best pressers of the ball. Um, not because he's particularly fast or aggressive like Maeda, but because he just anticipates things, he sees things quicker than everybody else. Um, but his pressing numbers are all down on last season. So we're not even, although his, although his number of, he's involved in more duels, more tackles, the number of pressures, the number of regains, the number of counter pressures—they're all down on last season. So I'm, I'm not seeing the upside to having O'Reilly on the ball less, not getting the ball in deeper positions, and not making connections with his winger and his fullback versus playing higher up. So I I'd, I'd, and I'm happy to be corrected on it, but I just think yeah. it's a—I think it's a tactical misstep, and I'm not seeing the benefit of it.
0: Yeah, I'm not. I'm not comparing the two players. So. If anybody wants to come at me in the comments, don't bother. But uh, O'Reilly last season and earlier early doors in this season, I thought he was quite good at picking up some of the the sort of positions that you would recognise from Kevin De Bruyne of picking up, where he's picking the bo- he's taking the ball from. The player most for most far forward on the right hand side, if you know what I mean, on the right hand side of the box, and he's the option for them to come back to in order to swing the ball in. That's where Kevin De Bruyne picks up a lot of his possession as well. And maybe you know there is sort of uh, actual you know correlations there between the way Man City play and the way Ange plays. But that's for me is where Matt O'Reilly's strength is: is getting the balls in those positions because there's a reason he's on set pieces, there's a reason he's on corners, there's there's a reason he's the guy who takes the corner. Uh, short and gets the cross in. It's because he's the best deliverer of the ball at Celtic. So for me, it's for me, he's not a target man. So I agree with you there. He's not the guy that you want on the end of your crosses. He's the guy that you want crossing the ball in.
2: Yeah, exactly. That that is his, his strength, and he 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 sees passes quickly as well. So he can he, he can feed it from that sort of half space in towards runners. I mean, by 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 being that far up as well, he's kind of restricting the runs that Kyogo can make because he's occupying the spaces that Kyogo could could run into. So I just don't I just don't see the upside to it. You know, his his stats at, at halftime in the Motherwell game were, were were essentially mirrored Kyogo's. So it's like you've got two you've got two people there essentially playing striker role, neither of whom are getting the ball very much. And, and then when mm-hmm. one of them is your most creative player that, and you're lacking creativity at that point, that doesn't make any any sense to me at all. So, um, you know, it might, it's, it's all very well out of possession. You might make the argument that, and I think I said this in a previous podcast, if you're playing him uh, at the spearhead of a 4-4-2 and then you do actually win the ball back quickly and then you get the ball to O'Reilly in that position, that's probably a, a good outcome right but i would actually rather have him receiving the ball slightly deeper and seeing everything in front of him and playing those quick quick passes to faster players like Maida, bada jota uh, and and you know, Kyogo. that to me is a better use of of his uh, of his skills really um so yeah and uh, to me that 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 was really really highlighted in that and it's and, and all we're talking is moving him Back about ten yards and to the right slightly. That's all, all, all we're talking. If we did, if you, I think if you did that, we would become a far more effective attacking uh, unit again.
0: Mm-hmm. So I uh, was chatting to James while you were off there, just about the game tomorrow. Uh, a feeling of optimism, pessimism. <laughs> what are you feeling ahead of this game?
2: Yeah, we seem to be. I think the team's feeling a little, a little uh, sort of. Uh, Sorry for itself at the moment, um, and I think there's a little bit of confidence, as I said before, a little bit of a confidence hit that's been taken. But um, tomorrow, I, honestly, tomorrow could go any which way. You know, you you could literally look at anything from a a big Leipzig win to a, a complete stalemate to a, to a big Celtic win because you just don't know what you're going to get. You don't know how Celtic, which Celtic is going to turn up. I think, like you were saying, Enda it's like we've seen, you know. We've seen a learning curve in operation with Celtic and how they approach these European games. And with Leipzig, you've got a team who they're trying to impose st- highly structured, more defensive coaches on a team full of attacking talent who previously you know, scored and conceded a lot of goals. And they seem to be throwing the baby out with the bathwater a little bit, is my observation. But mm. they could unleash that, that. And that attacking talent could go mental tomorrow. You could get endless balls over the top, Werner and Schobertslay, and uh, in you know, um, and Kunku running onto etc. Or, or they could they could just have one of their non-functional days where you know the, the midfielders look as ordinary as, as they can be, the the attackers are frustrating, Werner makes terrible decisions, and Kunku runs up blind alleys and and so on and so forth. So, and we could actually you know we, we could take them apart. So it, it could honestly be anything. I really don't know. I just hope we play with a bit more confidence than we showed on Saturday.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Anything else to bring up before we finish up this? I'm good. We're all good. Alan, will uh, we won't reveal your identity? Don't worry, it's okay. Um, <laughs> Which one?
2: No, you have been. We have been. We
0: have been live on YouTube now, but um, we'll we'll try not reveal it too early. Uh, look, it is what it is. I think the feeling going into this game would be much more positive even if Celtic had won that game 3-1 at the weekend and people would be happy-go-lucky I think the nervousness of this time of year is just something that it happens when you have injured players Ange did an interview one of many interviews he's done over the course of the international break I think it was with BT Sport, which is still ironically creating far better content for SPFL fans than Sky Sports are, <laughs> despite the fact that they don't have the rights for it. Um, That's a bingo. It was an interview. Yeah, it was an interview with them, and he was basically saying that like last Christmas they were just running off fumes and they're trying to get through it. I reckon going into this period now, trying to get all these games done before the World Cup break is going to be something similar. So it's not ideal times to to be Picking up injuries of your key players, but I think if we come through this game tomorrow with a draw, Celtic can still beat Leipzig at home. I, I still I still have full confidence in that. What what I'll, I'll get your predictions even though you say giving predictions predictions for the, the game tomorrow.
2: Well, I'm gonna go two two. <laughs> High scoring draw.
3: I mean, I can't be a Pollyanna. I've been focusing on this game for months, so I'll I'll go. uh, And again, this is purely as an analytical forecast, not as a fan. I'll say uh, 3-1 Leipzig. 3-1 Leipzig, okay. I'd actually be okay with that result, to be honest with you. Okay.
0: I'm going to go with a 2-1 win to Celtic, I think. I, I don't know. I just I, I hate the hype around RB Leipzig because they never deliver when you actually want them to deliver. And so I'm I think we're we we have the we have beaten them before. It's not a there's definitely no fear factor for me going into this game. We've beaten a better
2: version of this team before. Yeah, let's be honest. And if you look at if you look at you know Scottish teams even uh, against German teams, they're, they're a mid-table Bundesliga team at the moment, and and that 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 you know. We should be able to beat them mid-table Bundesliga team if we're on, if we're on our game, really. Mm. But this is such so, a well, J- Jekyll and Hyde team at the moment that we're up against that just could go anyway. Yeah,
0: the Bundesliga is such a weird league, though. I mean, the Bayer Leverkusen team that we we played last season are second last in the Bundesliga this year. Yeah. It's just such a up and down league that you can't really judge a team from from year on year. You have to go on what they're currently doing and what RB Leipzig are currently doing isn't really striking fear into me ahead of tomorrow night but we'll find out we'll wait and see and we'll analyze this game later on in the week as well like I mentioned Phil Bundesliga Bonnie will be on the channel tomorrow as we look at this game more in depth I'm delighted to have him on just for that name so uh, that'll be on the channel hopefully tomorrow around 12 o'clock midday one o'clock oh, later uh, you'll be able to get that and I'll podcast that as well if anybody's looking to spend most of the day building up to the game like I am um. If you want to get the Huddle Breakdown, you can get us on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, or you can subscribe to the channel as well here on YouTube, and you'll get notified every time we're live or we have uploaded a new episode of the podcast. Alan, James, thanks very much.
3: Take care, everyone. Thanks, guys.
0: All right. We will chat to you later on in the week. Until then, good luck. time to play
1: the game. time to play the game. I am the game, you don't wanna play me I am control, no way you can shake me I am heavy debt, no way you can pay me I am the pain, and I know you can't take me Look over your shoulder, ready to run Like a claimant bitch from a smoking gun I am the game, and I may do So move on out, you can die like a fool Try to figure out what my mood's gonna be Come on over, sucker, why don't you ask me Don't you forget there's a price you can pay Cause I am the game and I want to play You can't take me Play the game, you're gonna be the same You're gonna change your name, you're gonna die in flames